Hello, parents, future parents, grandparents, and caregivers of all types. This is The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents. I'm your host, Drew Nash. This is episode 106, and we have a terrific show coming to you today. Today's guest and I will talk about a topic that has undergone some significant and startling changes over the past few years, food allergies in infants and children. My guest today is a pediatric allergist who will talk to us about the recent changes and recommendations regarding how to reduce the risk of developing food allergies in your child, as well as what has changed in regards to how we deal with them when they occur. During our discussion, we will explore what research is behind these dramatically different recommendations and what allergists see as the possible causes. In addition, my guest will go on to discuss what is currently being tried to help treat or reduce the severity of allergies in children who are already affected. After the main discussion, I'll answer some questions from listeners. The Owner's Manual, a podcast for parents, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and most other podcasting platforms. As this is a new project, I'm calling out to current listeners to spread the word. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and leave a comment too. I hope you'll subscribe to the show so you can be notified when each new episode becomes available. Also, check out our Facebook page at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can like us, post a comment, and even post a question to be answered on the show. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, this is a great way to let us know. While we hope that listeners are able to learn and benefit from the content of this show, the information discussed on the owner's manual is not intended to diagnose or treat any specific individual or condition. There is no substitute for direct patient care from a trained clinician. If you have concerns about your child, we recommend that you make an appointment with your child's primary care physician for an evaluation. And now for the main event. My guest today is a graduate of Cal Berkeley, where he majored in comparative literature and molecular cell biology, an interesting combination. He attended medical school at the University of Alabama and then went on to complete his pediatric residency as well as his fellowship in adult and pediatric allergy and immunology at Seattle Children's Hospital and the University of Washington. Following his training, my guest continued as a clinical instructor at the Children's Hospital of Seattle and worked in private practice with Northwest Asthma and Allergy. The lure of Northern California drew him back in 2004 and he joined the Allergy and Asthma Medical Group in the East Bay. My guest is a member of the American Academy of Pediatrics, Allergy Association of Northern California, and a fellow of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Please welcome to the show, my friend and colleague, Matthew Lodewick. Welcome to the show. It's great to be on. And we are here to talk about food allergies, and I would like to actually fo- spend some time focusing on the newer recommendations for starting solid foods in infants and why that is, how that came to be. So first thing I want to ask you is, is how common is this problem? How common are food allergies? So food allergies, unfortunately, have become increasingly common. And so uh, when you and I were growing up, we might have known one classmate who had a food allergy. Maybe one. Right. Um, now we're on the order of 5 to 10% in uh, young children. Um, probably about half that in the older uh, uh, child and adults. So it's much more common. 
with uh, wheat, soy, um, milk, and egg being uh, probably the commonest, but also the most common to resolve. And things like peanut having uh, a prevalence of probably on the order of 2%, sometimes upwards of 5%, depending on the study. And when we talk about food allergies, there's different degrees and different types of presentations. So the thing that I think most people are aware of are the EpiPen anaphylactic kids. Right. And how prevalent is that? That's not the majority. Well, I think it is the majority, unfortunately. It is. Okay. It is. So I think the, you know, there's good and bad about this, right? So most kids who are at risk for anaphylaxis experience pretty mild symptoms with their exposure, right? So they get some mild hives or um, they have their lip swell or they have a little vomiting and then they look great and they see you and you're like, yeah, you've got a peanut allergy. Mm -hmm. um, but um, again, I think it's dependent on the dose, like how much peanut did you ingest? And commonly people are smart when they introduce a food to their child, they don't introduce, you know, uh, three peanut butter sandwiches. Um, and then I also think that, and this isn't something that we have science behind, but I think this is your experience too, that infants and young children, they're just immune systems, not that well tuned. So it takes more to cause less symptoms. So mm -hmm. most of the kids that I see with their first presentation of a food allergy, it's some mild hives. Um, but it does speak for the possibility of more serious reactions. Because you don't initially, it's rare to have someone have anaphylaxis with their first presentation. Right. I have certainly had that where I've had an infant in protracted terrible anaphylaxis, but almost always, I'd say 99.5% of the time, my experience is they've been mild highs. And it cumulatively would build. No, and that's another great kind of thought. So we used to tell people all the time that, um, each reaction will be worse. So every time there was an accidental ingestion, you'd think, oh my gosh, now what have I done to my child? That's not the case at all. Probably what does happen is as their immune system matures, they get more significant reactions and um, their eliciting dose, so the dose necessary to cause them to have serious reactions goes down. So that's more because the immune system's getting more robust and less because of the getting one step closer to the grave? Yes, that's the story I would tell. <laughs> okay. So I don't think, and truthfully, what I uh, commonly tell my parents is that, you know what, this is probably the worst reaction your child is going to have because almost always that reaction was with an intentional ingestion. They uh, ate a PBJ at a friend's house right. and they ate the whole thing. Right, Yeah. versus thereafter, they're going to be very fastidious and careful about what they're eating. Okay, that makes sense. So what age do food allergies typically present in infants and in children? That's a great question. I would say that we used to think you needed to have an exposure to have a reaction, but I think for the uh, most individuals, um, typically within the first couple of years of life, you'll see the onset of symptoms. So um, we'll probably move on to a discussion of um, something called the LEAP trial, where there was early introduction of uh, peanut. And in a high-risk group where they had patients with severe eczema, 10% of those kids at four to six months were already allergic to peanut. Before they ever were exposed. Before they were ever so exposed. So are you saying that they are literally born allergic? That's kind of the thinking, but okay. um, uh, there's much that we need to learn there. Or maybe something happened in utero possibly 
um, in utero in those first months of life, one of the thoughts is that, especially with eczema, that the sensitizing uh, factor is their skin. Mm -hmm. So they've got deeply inflamed skin and they're having uh, cutaneous exposure to peanut protein that is driving the sensitization. So there's some studies now looking at taking kids before they have active eczema and going kind of crazy with a severe eczema management plan to keep their eczema in check to see if you can reduce the likelihood of food allergy development. Unfortunately, the data hasn't panned out that that works. But it's a chicken and an egg thing. So typically, historically, we thought that the eczema got worse because the allergies got worse. And you're saying that possibly the allergies are going to get worse as the eczema gets worse. And if we're more aggressive at managing the eczema, we might yeah. be able yeah. to reduce their sensitization to foods. Yeah, so it's funny. So all this time, allergists have said that food allergies, environmental allergies are driving the eczema. And the dermatologists are saying the allergists don't know what they're talking about. And we've railed against the dermatologists. But it's looking more and more like the dermatologists are right. Okay. That the eczema is the, the kind of the first thing. And then the environmental and food allergies come thereafter and potentially asthma too. Okay. So early on in infancy, when you start seeing eczema start to flare in the first few months, really getting aggressive or really coming up with a true eczema management plan to minimize the eczema may help you long-term. Yeah, and I would say may, and I would underline the may, and I'd probably italicize it and bold it too because I think there's still so much to learn. Um, I think, as you know, eczema is really difficult to manage, mm -hmm. um, and we can do all these things, and if it doesn't matter, you know, was it worth all the trouble? Um, and I think eczema is one of those things that parents mourn over. They see their child just a mess, and it's difficult for them. So I would love to say that if we could cure their eczema, we would cure them of having food allergies, but I don't know that I feel that that's true. And sometimes just being patient with the eczema is the most important thing. But that may be a piece of the puzzle. Yes, it, it may definitely okay. may be a piece of the puzzle. Right. So what factors other than that can a parent control to try to influence positively their child's right. allergy so, risk? So in about 2000, we thought the best thing that uh, families could do was avoid all the highly allergenic foods. That's what right? I told people for years yeah, and years yeah, and yeah. years. Yeah, I think I told you to tell them that. Well, yeah, I, my teachers told me and everyone told yeah, me. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so we used to think that avoid the highly allergenic foods in um, pregnancy, especially the third trimester. Avoid them during those lactation months. And then really delay the introductions of things like peanuts and eggs and milk until, uh, you know, three and five years of age. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not necessarily panning out to be a wise idea. In fact, it's looking like it was really bad advice from us. Like the opposite of what people should be doing. Right. Yes. So there remains a lot of mystery to what the right answer is. And it may be 10 years from now when we do this podcast again that we're giving entirely different advice. So I think that's... Oh, I hope not. Yeah. But <laughs> what I think most experts believe is that um, in that third trimester, you shouldn't avoid any specific foods. If you want to eat peanuts, you should eat peanuts. If you have a family and offspring member who has a peanut allergy, 
um, and you don't have that much peanuts at home, I would still find a time and place to eat peanuts. So obviously if a woman's pregnant, you don't want to have them eat the food that they're allergic to. Right. But in the context of, say, an older sibling who has a nut allergy and now you're pregnant with the second, you should maybe find an opportunity to, outside the house, so you don't accidentally expose the older child, but to actually consume. Yes, I would, yeah. I would recommend that. I think that's wiser than avoidance. And while nursing as well. And definitely with nursing. So I think we all feel like nursing is a really good thing. Um, and so I think the interface of the breast milk with some of those allergens present in it is probably the best milieu to teach a child who's getting prepared to introduce new foods that this is a safe and good thing. Okay. And then the big change from my perspective as far as what I'm trying to educate, educate my patients for when they're getting ready to start solid foods in infants and do the whole rice cereal and things. So what are the current recommendations as far as what, how you go about that and what to avoid, if anything, and what not to avoid? Right. So um, it's a bit of a tricky uh, question, um, and I'm going to make it more complicated than it needs to be, and then you're going to uh, clarify it for everybody. Okay. So really the data is in severe eczema patients who are at high risk for peanut allergy. And in that group, early introduction seems to be smart. So if somewhere the four to six months age when they're starting to get ready to um, take solids, introducing peanut protein then seems to be a major risk factor or major benefit to reducing the likelihood of a future peanut allergy. And does that have to just happen? Is there a frequency that anyone has figured out? Is it just sort of like daily, weekly, once or twice? So another great question. And I will tell you that unfortunately our answer is based on how the study was set up, right? So yeah. It was six grams of peanuts per week. Um, so that's like about two to three uh, tablespoons, you know, probably about two tablespoons or excuse me, teaspoons of uh, peanut butter uh, two to three days a week. So you take it. Or take, 22 bomba. So, so doing it a couple times a week as opposed to necessarily daily. Right. Or So I think most people feel like you can dole it out however um, you're comfortable with doling it out. Mm -hmm. um, but I would also say that, you know, part of it probably is how we would do things in a natural, normal way, right? So I would make peanut a staple of a child's diet. Um, and again, with the peanut butter, if you're going to do peanut butter, obviously it needs to be thinned. Mm -hmm. um, but I would make it, you know, a couple times a week, I'd spoon it into the oatmeal or the rice cereal or the wheat cereal and mm -hmm. just make it part of um, the plan. I would also say... The data probably, but not clearly, supports early introduction of egg. Mm -hmm. And most experts think the other highly allergenic food should also be introduced in so that time frame. giving like a scrambled egg or a little bit of a scrambled egg? Yes. Actually, just yes. And as then, opposed to something that's mixed in, like a, a baked good with an egg. Actually giving egg straight up. Which yeah. is the opposite of what we said. Everyone was doing yolks, but not the whites. Right. So... Um, and this also hasn't had a clear answer. So they have tried to do the same study that they did with peanut with egg and not had the same clean results. Different uh, investigators have looked at using baked good where there's low concentrations of egg, which typically is well tolerated even in the individual who is allergic to concentrated egg. Um, and they've had varying and oftentimes disappointing results. Um, for me, what I would say is I probably 
would start with something that has a baked good with a little bit of egg in it and just soften it because the high, there's such a high likelihood that that will be tolerated mm-hmm. and then move towards... Progress uh, forward. Yeah. And what about all the other potential allergens? Soy, tree nuts. Uh, do you kind of propose doing the same sort of thing? Get some almond butter? Yeah, so definitely wheat, egg, soy, cow's milk protein, I would try to get in early. The other big ones, I think, are the tree nuts and to sesame. So the tree nuts are all different. So there's different groups. And I would say, really, there's three big groups. There's almond, there's the cashew pistachio family, and there's the walnut pecan family, which may also include hazelnut. Mm -hmm. So I would try to get those three tree nut families on board. But you can't, I mean, you would have to be um, OCD or a NASA scientist to do Some that. Some people on, are. Right, right. So but like, would you do, like, would you just do one thing at a time, like do nut peanuts for a while and then move on to tree nuts? Or would you go like peanuts on Monday and cashews on Tuesday and wheat on Wednesday? Right. So I would, um, with early introductions, I would start with a single food. So I would start probably with peanut because that's where the that's, robust that's, that's data the money is. shot. Yeah. yeah. And I would do... Um, just a taste of it the first day, kind of double that dose the next day. And over about five or six uh, days, you'll get to a cumulative dose where you're having a teaspoon or two of uh, peanut butter mixed into something. And once you're there, I would probably keep on that plan for a week or two before I'd introduce one of these other foods. With the tree nuts, I would choose one a week, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to do almond butter this week or um, just because otherwise it gets too overwhelming trying to feed and what's the risk of something happening when you're starting that young? Again, so this is a great question, and I guess I could give a somewhat controversial answer and say, you know, I think for the most people, if you take approach where you just give little t- uh, trace t- uh, tests and increase the dose on a, you know, one dose a day basis, you're not going to see a severe systemic reaction. And you'd be watching for face rashes initially, maybe some facial swelling if it progressed, total body rashes like hives. You're not going to, I mean, even though it's not impossible, you're not going to go from first exposure to anaphylaxis. That's what I would say. For almost everybody, the reaction is going to be a fairly mild presentation of some mild hives, maybe some hives and some vomiting. But as I, a worst case scenario, not not expecting that. Yes, yeah. yes, in terms of what I would expect if um, one of these children were to react. So that's, I think, another reason that there's been a thought that, look, if you're not high risk, that you can introduce these foods um, without testing. And so I have a lot of patients who, when I actually tell them this, especially the patients who have older kids who I said the complete opposite with the last one, and now yeah. I'm telling them this, they want to come into my office and do this in the waiting room. Like they literally, I discourage it for a lot of reasons. One, it's not practical. Two, there may be a child who truly has a nut allergy and we really don't want people bringing in peanut butter and maybe smearing it on the couch or whatever. So, So, but the risk really, it really isn't a risky thing. If you're going to see some kind of a reaction initially, it's going to be generally, I mean, no guarantees. Right. Because you're sitting there making a face. Yes. So there's no guarantees. But in general, the risk of having an anaphylactic reaction as an infant getting exposed to a trace amount of nuts is incredibly low. Uh, yes, I would say it's low. 
So I think that again, if you're a high risk group, maybe there's a, 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 um, a place that you do it and maybe you see the allergist and maybe you get tested that can be discussed. Cause I don't know that that's always the right answer. I have a friend who's an allergist, but an, uh, he's an epidemiologist and a statistician, and he's concerned that we do all this testing and we're probably overdiagnosing food allergy. Um, but I think for most families where there is a strong family history of food allergy, they're not going to want to do it at home. And I can totally understand and I can support that. No, and I have a patient who sees you who is in that exact same situation. So when you have a younger sibling and the older child has an allergy, they're going to... It's distressing and it's hard. And and asking a parent to do that at home, I think, is asking a lot. But I would also say to you that um, almost every one of those kids is going to be fine. Mm -hmm. Right? So if, if they feel like no, we don't want to do this testing. We're scared that we're going to have a diagnosis that doesn't fit um, a clinical situation. Then yeah, just having it uh, trace exposures and starting slow is, I think, safe and fine. Okay. And then can you speak, you mentioned it earlier, the LEAP studies. Can you just speak a little bit to the listeners about how it came to be that literally we just did a complete 180 on what we've been saying for years? Yeah. So... What's the scientific underpinning? It's a great story. So as countries have become increasingly westernized, we have more allergy. We have more asthma. We have more environmental allergies. We have more food allergies. We don't entirely understand. But there's an outlier in the peanut allergy world, and that's Israel. So Israel has the lowest level of peanut allergy anywhere. Really? Yeah. And so there is a great clinician investigator who wanted to figure out why and he learned that they feed their kids these teething biscuits that contain peanut protein and he wondered if that was why these kids were less allergic and so he looked at at um, families from Israel who lived in Israel and that moved to London and he saw that as they moved to London and they got the bad advice we gave them they had an increasing prevalence of peanut allergy. So it really was when you were living in Israel, following doing the Israeli lifestyle thing, lifestyle with these teething biscuits, presumably, right? That their risk was low. Exactly. That was That's amazing. Yeah. Now, the one challenge with Israel is they have a higher level of sesame allergy than other parts of the world, and they use a lot of early sesame. So, so that doesn't make sense. Well, it, that's the great wonders of our human body, right? So there may be more to the story, but I think um, that study did spawn this really large, um, well-designed study where um, they took kids who were high risk for food, for for peanut allergy, and they were studied at four months, they were skin tested, and then they were divided into groups based on um, randomization and then skin test uh, degree of reactivity, and the results were compelling. So in the group where there was a weak positive skin test, um, about 35% of those kids who did not consume peanut went on to uh, become peanut allergic. So you're saying they had never been exposed. Never had. They had a weekly positive skin test, maybe because of the eczema thing we were talking about. Who knows why. But yes, they had a positive test, but it was weekly positive. Um, And then um, the group who had a weak positive test, who went and consumed peanut and tolerated it, only 10% of them ended up developing a peanut allergy. 
So an enormous reduction in the incidence of uh, peanut allergy. Now, when they did the study, they also found that about 10% of the kids were already allergic to peanut when they started. And then there's this other group where they had negative skin tests. And in that group, um, about 12 to 14% ended up going on to be peanut allergic if they did not have early introduction of peanut. So they started out, you knew they were not sensitive initially. And if you didn't expose them early, 12 to 14%. And if you did? It was about 2 to 3%. So it really made a big difference. It's a seven-fold increase if you yeah. don't ex- get exposed. Huge difference. Yeah. So just I uh, think the definitive, and there's you know it's just a hard study to find any faults with because it was so well-designed. Okay. That is amazing. Yeah. Now, Thanks. I will say that one other parenthetical about that study is I have patients who've done everything right. They've done the early introduction. They've fed their child the peanut protein. Some of them still sensitize. Right. So um, that's the hardest part is why does it happen? And in some cases you do everything right and you're still uh, looking um, at a peanut allergy. Well, I mean, it's not an exact, exact thing you can't guarantee. Right. But you're looking at large groups and risk in large populations. Right. That's fairly compelling. Yeah, it's incredibly compelling. And I think uh, a little bit shocking and embarrassing to uh, the advice we had been giving. It is. So. Just to kind of go on to the next thing here as far as used to be that we told people when, the, when they had a food allergy, like a nut allergy or something, that was going to be a lifelong thing. And now we're hearing about ways to desensitize people. Yeah. So even before we get to the desensitization okay. part, 20 to 25% of peanut allergic kids will lose their allergy. So that's like one in four to one in five of our patients. And what's the time frame of that? Well, it can be a long time frame. So you, you know, it might be at five, it might be at 16. So it's something that it's important to follow. Someone isn't necessarily stuck for life with a a peanut allergy. And do you evaluate that later on with skin testing, blood testing, oral challenge? Skin testing and or blood testing kind of to follow uh, the direction of the allergy. And then when both skin and blood are really low or negative, then we would follow it with an oral food challenge. So in, in the office, not at home. Yes. 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 <laughs> Very important. Yeah. Okay. So um, another thing that's uh, kind of interesting that came out of Europe was they do a lot of something called sublingual immunotherapy to environmental allergens. So if you have environmental allergies, you go see an allergist and they put you on these allergy drops and they work really well and they have a much better safety profile than allergy shots. So... So 10 years ago, this would have been laughed, this was laughed at. Yeah. In in fact, I think the initial studies were a um, attempt to laugh at the studies. So they did this in an attempt to disprove and show how ridiculous the European allergists were. Exactly. Yes. So that might not be entirely true, but it's my cynical point of view. I like it. So, um, yeah. So anyway, so um, they looked at it with hazelnut and then milk and egg, and they found that a lot of patients ended up tolerating hazelnut in meaningful amounts in milk and egg. So that started studies in the U.S. on peanut milk and egg. And lo and behold, you could get kids so that they could tolerate meal-sized amounts of those allergens. So that has kind of shocked the world. Um, and it's At least changed. in this country. Yeah, it's changed um, the way we look at food allergy. And I think it's changed it for the better, right? So I think leading up to that point, most allergist specialists would tell you that 
it's fine to just tell people to avoid peanuts or avoid their food allergen. And that was the extent of um, the support that they were given. And now knowing that there's other ways of doing it, I think allergists realize that's, we should work harder to help these people. So OIT, I think, is the first step. And some, there's something called sublingual immunotherapy as well, mm-hmm. is the first step towards giving uh, people options. So again, you slowly, over the course of months, build up on um, how much peanut protein or cow's milk protein that um, you give a child. And of course, you do it here in the office. Yeah, so this is just to point out. So this is not capital N-O-T, something that a parent would try to make up an attempt at home. So I would strongly, strongly yeah. uh, emphasize, no, this don't do this at home. Close because, medical supervision. Yeah. So yeah. one of the problems with OIT is that risk benefit does not favor it. So more people react to OIT um, than simply with avoidance. So about 50% have some mild reactions, some stomach symptoms or some itchy mouth, mm-hmm. but 10 to 15% need epi. And that's with real careful, cautious care. So it's not a walk in the park. And is that a contraindication if you get to a point where someone starts to need epinephrine? Are you done? Or do you say, okay, we'll reduce the dose and try again next week? I think it depends on the, the circumstances. But by and large, anytime someone has a systemic reaction, that question needs to really be strongly quest, you know, asked. Yeah. Is Because I do think once you're showing indications that... Uh, you're prone to systemic reactions to OIT, maybe it's not the right plan. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. And we haven't teased apart yet how to figure out who wh- which subset of people it's going to work for and who it doesn't, but that may be a few years down the line. Yeah, that's the hope. So yeah. there's a, so lots of hope. So there's um, about 50% of people who, once they're on their maintenance dose, could go off it for a while and be fine. And it'd be nice to know who those people are. And it would be nice to know if they're in that zone. Could they just have peanuts once or twice a week, like mm-hmm. the Leap kids? Just to kind of maintain. Right. Um, and so we still need to, to learn about that. But we also need to learn about who are the ones who react often, right? So even if you just get itchy mouth, that's a hard to deal with if it's happening all the time. I'm just getting my 14-year-old son to eat broccoli every day is a challenge. Mm-hmm. So asking a child who's uh, responding to a food in a negative way to continue to eat it, that's, that's asking a lot. Um, and again, um, if you're having it repeatedly, it would be nice to, to know that ahead of time. And then if you're having more serious systemic reactions, it's particularly important to question whether doing it. That being said, there's a lot of pushback from families. So um, there's these great books that I highly recommend all of your listeners read. Okay. One is called You Are Not So Dumb. And or you're not so smart, and the other ones you are now less dumb. And what are the what are those address? They talk about human psychology. So mm-hmm. we're we're all not logical, despite what we think. Mm-hmm. So there's one thing called the sunk cost fallacy, right? So if we put a lot of money into something, then you are going to enjoy it or love it, right? So if you're going to buy a fancy car, you are going to think it's the world's greatest car because you put a lot into it, right? Even though my Sentra might be more awesome, mm-hmm. but um, the same thing happens with OIT, and I see this with my patients: is they're struggling, they're having a hard time with dosing, but they see that, geez, on average they're having one half or one peanut every day, and that's really meaningful to them. Um, so it's hard to get them to step away and say. 
no, this is not the right plan. You're having too many allergic reactions. Um, I'm nervous about mm -hmm. this. So once they start, it's hard for them to give it up. Yes, because yeah. it's a it's a time commitment. It's yeah. a lot. Of, they're coming in a lot, um, and uh, I mean, these are really remarkable individuals who are willing to to put up with the challenges of doing uh, OIT. And what is the would you say the overall success rate of that? So I think we'd say about seventy to eighty, maybe even eighty five percent of people will get to um, a therapeutic dose, what we consider kind of a maintenance dose that would protect them from. Um, an unintended gestion and of a meaningful amount of their allergen. So the intention is not to get the kid able to eat a PBJ and be happy with it. It's if Billy accidentally touches them with peanut butter on their hand, they're not going to end up in the hospital. Right. Or if uh, Billy finds that pod tie is fantastic and has dug into it uh, without recognizing it, that yep. it's also not going to be consequential. Yep. But yeah, no, at this point, our thinking isn't, we want to make you a peanut B and J everyday person. Uh -huh. so. Yeah. Okay. Well, Matt, that was amazing. What a great conversation that's relevant for everybody. And uh, I learned a lot talking to you about this. I love those, uh, the leap study and the Israel reference. That was great. Can you tell the listeners about if they want to seek out your advice and or come see you where people can find you? So uh, bayareaallergy.com. You can find us, reach out to us and anything we can do. Of course, we're, we're happy to help and it's always fun being with you. It's always great. Well, thanks for talking with me about it. And I uh, hope to come back at some point in the future and talk about something else allergy related. Awesome. There's right, so much to talk about. There is. All right. Thank you. Yep. And now let's take a quick break. When we come back, we'll answer some phone in questions. take questions, I want to remind the listeners about our phone-in line, which has been set up for people to call in and leave voicemail questions to be answered on the show. The call-in number is 925-732-6274. We also have a Facebook page at the Owner's Manual Podcast, where you can leave comments or post questions or ideas for the show. Whichever way you prefer, we can't wait to hear from you. And now for the questions. Hey, Dr. Nash, this is Josh from Bellevue, Washington. I'm wondering if there are some kinds of food allergies that kids can outgrow. And if so, why does that happen? Thanks. That's a great question, Josh, and thanks for calling. So there are lots of examples of infants and children who develop food allergies who eventually either outgrow them or they just tend to fade. The most common example that I see in my office is a cow's milk protein sensitivity in an infant. And of babies who are sensitive to cow's milk protein, 90% of those children will outgrow that sensitivity over the first year. And of the 10% that don't, 90% of them usually outgrow that by age two. And that's a different kind of food allergy that usually causes gut irritation and sometimes eczema and skin irritation. 
as opposed to the food allergies that Dr. Lodewick was talking about in our discussion earlier that are usually more of the serious anaphylactic type. According to Dr. Lodewick, a significant proportion of kids do outgrow even serious food allergies over a 5 to 10 to 15 year period. And it's unclear exactly why that happens in some kids. Probably is related to changes in the immune system. In any event, those sort of allergies really need to be followed closely by an allergist to determine if the skin tests and or blood tests are becoming less reactive over time before anybody considers any kind of oral challenge to determine if the sensitivity is really gone. So in answer to your question, yeah, there are allergies that resolve over time. And I think Dr. Lodewick quoted about 25% of those allergies will improve with time. But this is not something that a parent would do without being closely followed by an allergist with laboratory tests and skin tests, etc. So I hope that answers your question. This is Jill from Richmond, Massachusetts. My question is this. How do you tell if your child breaks out in hives, whether it's from a food allergy or from something else like a virus? Thank you. Thanks for calling, Jill. Another great question. So we see hives in the office fairly commonly. Probably at least twice a week, I see a kid coming in with a presentation of a hivey looking rash on the body. And you have to kind of look at the context of when this occurs. If someone's going to develop a reaction to a food or an antibiotic in a body rash that looks like hives, it usually is going to present within 20, 30 minutes of consuming or being exposed to that food. So it's, a kid's not going to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at 10 o'clock in the morning and develop hives at 4 o'clock in the afternoon or the next day. The story that would make me more suspicious of it being a food-related allergy would be exposure to a food and then either immediate or in the first 30 minutes after that, developing facial swelling, a rash on the face, or total body hives. If it's separated by more than, say, an hour, I'd be a little hesitant to think that it was the food that was a trigger. And the most common cause of hives that I see in my office is really a virus. And the story goes usually something like this. A child will have an upper respiratory infection or cold for three or four days. And just as they seem like they're getting over it, any fevers are gone, their nose is starting to get better. As it seems like they're getting better, they may break out in a total body hive rash. And frequently parents will try to find a trigger like a food they ate and come in thinking that this is possibly a food allergy. But most of the time, it's actually the body making an intense immune reaction to the virus that's causing a cold and almost having an allergic type reaction to that virus. So if there's not a food or an exposure that's immediately preceding the development of the hives, then my concern about a food allergy or in the case of an antibiotic, an antibiotic allergy, drops substantially. I hope that answers your question. And that's our show for today. I would really like to thank my guest, Matt Lodewick, for coming in and talking to us about food allergies, prevention, and treatment. 
I think this is an interview where both the listeners and myself learned a great deal about the topic, and I appreciate him coming in and taking the time to speak with me. For those of you who have been enjoying this podcast, we need your help. Spread the word. Tell your friends to listen and subscribe. Check out our Facebook page at the Owner's Manual Podcast. Leave a comment, a question, or an idea for the show. Until next week, this is your host, Drew Nash, wishing you good health and happy parenting. The opinions and beliefs expressed on the Owner's Manual are that of myself, Dr. Nash, and my guests, and do not necessarily represent those of sponsors or other governing boards. The Owner's Manual is recorded and produced at Neutron Sound, Danville, California. The content of the Owner's Manual is the intellectual property of Andrew L. Nash, M.D., and One to One Pediatrics Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.